Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and joined by a very, very special guest, uh, Max Boot, who has a new book out, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Well, this sounds awfully familiar to me, Max. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me on. I think we've been on a similar uh, ideological odyssey in the last few years. We really have, and you know, um, you showed me, um, you know, some some of the some of the uh, the drafts of the book uh, when we were back in San Francisco, and uh, and I would, as I was reading through it very very quickly, I was thinking, boy, a lot of this sounds familiar to me. <laughs> it's just, and it's good to know that other people have done this. But I think there are probably, while we probably agree ninety six percent of of the time on all of this stuff, I think there are some differences. And I think it would be most it would be more interesting to sort of explore some of those. Your subtitle is "Why I Left the Right." Now I claim to continue to be a conservative, um, a contrarian conservative. But the question is, what is Max Boot right now? David Horowitz says that you have gone full leftist. Now, I've been accused of the same thing, but let's just talk about how you describe yourself and, and, and where you've ended up, because there are people who would say, hey, Max Boot has just become a liberal Democrat right now. Well, I'm definitely not a liberal Democrat. I'm not a Democrat of any kind. I'm certainly not a leftist. I guess I'm a little bit confused in my ideological identity because I don't even like, I, I'm certainly not a Republican anymore, and I you know, re-registered the day after the last election as an independent, not as a Democrat. But I don't even like to describe myself as a conservative these days because, Mm. you know, in American politics, conservative has basically become code word for Trump toady. And I'm obviously not that. I sometimes like to call myself a classical liberal, but I'm basically kind of a center of the road, you know, moderate conservative. I think that's essentially what I am. And I don't think there's a place for me in American politics. I feel politically homeless because I am certainly not represented by uh, the Republican Party, which has taken this turn into hard right white nationalist populism. But I'm not really represented by the Democratic Party either because they are veering uh, pretty far to the left into Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren territory. So, you know, I'm, you know, in the middle of the road where, as I think it was uh, uh, the the Texas politician Jim Hightower said there's nothing but uh, dead armadillos. And here we, and here we are. We, you know, I have the book, you know, How the Right Lost Its Mind, which we, we talk about some of the same things. But let's go back, Max, to, to 2015. You and I would have both described ourselves as conservatives, right? Absolutely. And, 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 and we were comfortable being conservatives. Absolutely. And comfortable so, being Republicans, too, at least in my case. So, so the, one of the questions that I have is, you know, were we wrong about a lot of things. I mean, uh, clearly we did not, well, I, I, I've said, I'm not going to speak for you, you know, that, that I thought I understood what the conservative movement was about. I thought I understood what Republicans were more or less uh, about. And I thought I understood who our allies were and was proven wrong over the last uh, several years. But when you look back, you know, when did you start to think, maybe I'm wrong about these these ideas and these policies that I have supported basically my entire professional life. Well, my rethinking was really spurred by the rise of Donald Trump, which began more than three years ago when he came down that damn escalator at Trump Tower and started attacking Mexicans as rapists and murderers. And I, that was just so antithetical to everything I believed in. I thought that he would never gain any traction in the Republican Party. And when he did uh, and, you know, committed 
one uh, uh, offensive gaffe after another, if if they're really gaffes. I mean, he, he certainly veered very far to the uh, nationalist, xenophobic right. Uh, and when he was embraced by the Republican Party, that made that was a that was an, a wake up moment for me to say, wait a second, who are these people? I mean, I've been friends with them. I have been compatriots with them. I have been fellow travelers with them my entire adult life. And I feel like I don't really know them because they are willing to stand up for things that I find repugnant. And it makes me realize I need to go back and rethink what was the Republican Party. And and it makes me realize that there were a lot of these trends that were there all along, maybe not dominant, but certainly present. And they played a larger role in the Republican Party than I'd been willing to, to concede. Uh, because, you know, in the past, for example, when liberals said that the Republican Party is fundamentally racist, I thought that was a horrible libel because, you know, I said, I'm not racist. My friends aren't racist. You know, how can you possibly say this? And now I realize, I mean, I'm certainly not going to say that all Republicans are racist, but I will say that what Donald Trump showed is there is a substantial constituency within the Republican Party for fairly open racism. So that vindicates a lot of the criticisms and makes me realize you know, my goodness, what did I, you know, what kind of movement did I tie myself to for my entire adult life? Yeah, this is the distinction that some people make, which is that the what happened was maybe discredited the conservative movement, but not necessarily conservative ideas. But what you're saying is that the disillusionment with the conservative movement made you ask, you know, what did they really stand for? Let's talk about race, because this is one of the more difficult. You know, I spent, I would say, more than 20 years pushing back on liberals who were saying that 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 conservatives and Republicans were racist and, you know, frankly, resented some of the the overstatement. And I guess where I'm at here is that conservatives were not I mean, I have no idea how many conservatives were, were racist, but. Um, but that was more like a recessive gene that we had kept in check for many, many years. You know, that, that you had the Father Coughlin's, you had the, the, the Pat Buchanan's, the George Wallace's out there, but they were never what the conservative movement had embraced and that somehow that's what changed. So, so, you know, I think that there are going to be a lot of conservatives who are going to push back on you and say, well, you're saying that, that conservatism was in fact racism um, doesn't that paint with a excessively broad brush? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that all of conservatism was, was defined by racism. I think that's just flat out wrong. And I'm not even saying that all conservatives today are racist. What I am saying, however, is that there is a larger constituency for racism within the Republican Party than I had previously realized. And even for the rest of the Republican Party, the people who don't regard themselves as racist and may not be racist, even for them, the fact that Donald Trump is a flagrant racist is not considered a breaking point. They're willing to accept it in the service of other priorities. And that, to me, is just flagrantly wrong. Uh, you know, I've, but you know, I basically agree with what you're saying, Charlie, and, and I, I do think that the balance has shifted within the Republican Party, where you, you know, you used to have kind of a mainstream conservative movement that was in control and that nominated people like, you know, uh, Mitt Romney, John McCain, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Bob Dole, Ronald Reagan, etc., and then you had, you know, seething underneath the surface, this white nationalist populist. Uh, racist resentment, and now I think the uh, what's happened under Trump is that the that the equation has been flipped. It's now the white populist nationalist movement that is in control, and the principled conservatives who are a small minority within the Republican Party. 
Well, the principled conservatives, and this is where it gets difficult. I mean, clearly, and I, I don't disagree with you, you know, fundamentally on this, except to say that what we found out is is how many Republicans and conservatives were willing to tolerate that kind of racism, or because they are so uh, transactional that they're willing to say that there were other things that they were, you know, that they were that they were willing to look the other way because they were going to get some of the other things. So when we talk about principled conservatives. The pushback that that both you and I get, of course, is that people will say, well, look, if in fact you believe in conservative ideas, conservative ideas aren't are winning now under under Trump and the Republican administration, you, you know, and that, that that yes, he may be distasteful, but if you believe in conservative ideas, you get conservative judges, constitutionalists, you get tax cuts, you get economic growth, you get deregulation, uh, you get a, uh, you know, a muscular foreign policy. So, Max, from a conservative point of view, what's not to like? Well, I, I, I'd be the first to concede that, that Trump has done some things that mainstream conservatives can applaud. And certainly, I'm sure that any Republican president would have uh, you know, cut taxes or would have appointed conservative judges. But the argument that I make is that, uh, you know, we are paying a very high price for a few conservative achievements, and I think far too high a price with a, you know, with Republicans, for example, have long stood for uh, the need for moral leadership in office, and, and Donald Trump is about as immoral or amoral as you can get. Somebody who lies an average of eight times a day, who pays off porn stars, you know, Republicans have stood for law and order and supporting law enforcement, and Donald Trump is somebody who calls the FBI, our premier law enforcement agency, a cancer in our country. Uh, you know, we've stood for—Republicans have stood for standing up to uh, Russian aggression, and Donald Trump is somebody who kowtowed to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki in, in a humiliating performance. Republicans have stood for, you know, promoting democracy and freedom uh, in the world— and Donald Trump is somebody who says that he's in love with Kim Jong-un, who is one of the most odious despots on the planet. Uh, you know, you can go on and on. And, and the fact is, you know, on, on, every, on, on almost every significant principle, I feel like Donald Trump has, has violated what, what conservatives believe in. Because remember, conservatives, when I was growing up in the 1980s with, under Ronald Reagan, conservatives were people who believed in American leadership, who believed in free trade, who believed in immigration. Uh, who believed in a colorblind society. Donald Trump doesn't believe in any of those things. And just because there's a tiny sliver of overlap between his views and those of other conservatives doesn't mean that conservatives should just blind themselves to all of the outrages and all the abhorrent behavior that represents an embarrassment and a stain upon our country. But are you one of those conservatives who believed those things back in, back in the Reagan era? And, and were you wrong about those things? And why are you not still a conservative of that stripe? Well, I, I, I don't think my views have changed too radically uh, since the uh, 1980s uh, because I still believe in the fundamentals of Reagan-esque conservatism. But, I, you know, I have to admit that my views have shifted a bit. Uh, you know, in the past, I, uh, you know, defined myself as a national security analyst. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. I kind of stayed in my lane. I was a foreign policy advisor to three Republican presidential candidates. And so I generally opined on, you know, foreign policy issues. And I didn't get a lot into social issues or, you know, gun control or immigration or all these other areas where, you know, I now realize there I was growing increasingly alienated uh, from the Republican viewpoint uh, because I'm somebody who thinks that uh, it is prudent to have 
you know, stricter gun control that, you know, Ronald Reagan himself endorsed the ban on assault weapons. And I think that still makes a lot of sense. I'm somebody who believes in the science on climate change. I'm somebody uh, who is, you know, fairly liberal on, on social issues. And so I'm, I dissent from the, from the hard right orthodoxy that the Republican Party has embraced. Uh, but, you know, in the past, I kind of squelched my, my, my dissent in the name of party unity. Mm -hmm. I just assumed it was kind of a big tent party. And so I overlooked a lot of the things that were going on. I mean, for example, with Fox News, you know, I was, uh, you know, on Fox News occasionally, and I always thought it was, you know, fairly bombastic and simplistic, but I thought that's what it took to sell uh, conservative ideas to a mass audience. But now I've, you know, I've, I've realized, wait a second, they weren't selling conservative ideas. They were selling populist, nationalist, far right ideas. And that's really what their audience was lapping up. And so there's a lot of stuff that was going on on the right uh, that I was either blind to or didn't speak out against because I was, you know, part of the movement and I felt this pressure to conform. And I no longer feel that. Now I'm just uh, letting it rip. And, you know, if people say I'm not a good conservative anymore or I'm not a Republican, I really don't care. It doesn't matter to me what you call me. I'm just going to try to speak the truth as best as I see it. You know, this is one of the things I really liked about your book, the, the, the candor and the, and the self-examination where you acknowledge I was part of this. It was happening in real time around me, and I either didn't see it or I ignored it. And, and that's one of the interesting questions. And, and, and I, by the way, confess to, to, to the same sorts of things. You know, I look back on a rally that, that I was the MC of with it, uh, that featured Sarah Palin. And I'm thinking, okay, what was I thinking back then? What did I not see? And, you know, part of it is this party loyalty or this, this, this tribalism. But as you go back, and I'm sure you've done the same thing, to realize that there were people who saw this, you know, a long time before Trump. Now, I don't think that Trump was inevitable. If he was, you know, I don't think he was inevitable. I don't think he, that uh, the Trumpism was inexorable. But a lot of this was out there, and a lot of us did look the other way because of this being on a team. The other thing that I think you de you describe, and and I feel very much the same way, is the sort of breaking out of the chrysalis, and suddenly when you don't have to be a team player, you can look at things with fresh eyes. That's and, yeah, exactly and, and, right. And, 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 and even though much of this is depressing, being excommunicated, I find that pretty liberating, and I sense you do as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's liberating, but it's also scary. I mean, it makes you realize why people, uh, you know, are, become part of this uh, ideological or, or party tribe, why people substitute uh, party dogma for independent thinking, because— it frankly saves a lot of time. You don't have to really think, you know, what is my position on issue X? You just say, well, what are my compatriots on, on Fox News and the Republican Party or, or down at the local diner? What do they say? And I'm with that, basically. And, you know, that was basically my view for a lot of years because, you know, like a lot of people, I developed, you know, some independent views on, my, on the areas that I specialized in and in, in national security stuff. And for the rest, I basically kind of went with the flow. And it, and it was... You know, there was, you know, now in hindsight, I'm realizing uh, that there was real pressure to conform, which I didn't even realize was there. But, you know, when you're part of an ideological movement, uh, there there is pressure that you you, you don't want to uh, be a troublemaker. You don't want to be called out. You, you know, you want to get along with your friends. And, and I certainly did a lot of that uh, over the years. And now, you know, I've, as you say, I, I've broken out of that. And it's, and it's dismaying on one level because I feel like I have lost friends and, and there are long-term relationships that are 
very deeply strained and even broken. Uh, and it's, it's not easy intellectually because I'm basically having to think through de novo, what do I think about this issue? Not what is the expected right-wing response, but what do I, Max Boot, think examining the evidence? And so that takes a lot of intellectual labor and energy and trying to be as honest as I can. But at the end of the day, it is, as you suggest, liberating uh, because, you know, I've broken out of this dogma which shaped and limited my thinking in ways that I only now realize. But it's also unsettling, right? Because yes. you're not part of anything anymore. I mean, there's a reason why people stay within tribes. There's a reason why it's it's it's, it's imprinted in us because, you know, as, especially as we come, become more more tribal. So give me a sense of, and you talk about it in the book, things that you've changed your mind on. And in, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, and you mentioned this early on, on, on race, and the role of race. Tell me what you would have said if we were having this conversation in 2015 and where you are now. Well, I think it's it's fair to say that, you know, I have certainly been sensitized uh, to how prevalent and and problematic racism remains in America. I would say in, tw in 2015, before the rise of Trump, I was a fairly uh, complacent, clueless white guy who tended to focus on the progress we have made since the days of Jim Crow and was not willing to admit the deep problems that we still have. The election of Donald Trump, after fairly blatant racist rhetoric, was a wake-up call for me. And so, too, I might add, have been all these videos of police brutality against African Americans. I mean, this is something that, that black people in America have been saying for a long time, that they get stopped for driving while black. And I frankly never believed it. I thought that was that was an exaggeration. I was reflexively pro-police. I wanted to believe the law enforcement perspective. But the videos don't lie. And it really underlines to me that, yeah, they've been they've been telling the truth. Uh, there there is a problem there that there are uh, you know, while, while most police officers are, are wonderful and, and courageous guardians of, of, of the law, there, there are a lot of bad apples out there. There are these racist cops who do behave abusively. And, and you know, that's a reality that, uh, you know, I as a white person was, was not really aware of. The same thing, by the way, with the Me Too movement. That's been a wake-up call for me, too, about to make me realize that uh, so a lot of the things that feminists have been saying, that was right, too. I mean, I used to scoff at this notion that we lived in this patriarchy and women were abused. But, you know, I had I, I feel like I was I was pretty naive because I had no idea that the kind of stuff that Harvey Weinstein did or or, or Charlie Rose or even Donald Trump. I had no idea how prevalent that was. And, you know, now talking to my female friends, they tell me they knew it all along. Yeah. It was happening to them all the time. Uh, but. You know, I was kind of living in my little uh, bubble, and, and, and so I, I'm not proud of the fact that I was, I think, you know, fairly naive about America. And if, I mean, if, if there's an excuse for, for what I regard as my, by my blindness, I would say it's the fact that I am an immigrant. You know, I came here in 1976 at age six from the Soviet Union, and so I always had, you know, a very Pollyannish view of America. This was the land of opportunity. This was a, the greatest country in the world. This was the place that took me and my family in and offered us uh, the chance to, to do what we wanted to do in freedom and security. So I've always been intensely pro-American, and I think that blinded me uh, to some of the, the dark spots in American history and in American culture, which, you know, I'm certainly not turning anti-American. I still think we're the greatest mm -hmm. country, but it makes me realize that we have more blemishes uh, than I was willing to admit prior to the rise of Trump. 
You have uh, a chapter, chapter five, the cost of capitulation with sections on collusion, the rule of law, fake news, ethics, fiscal irresponsibility, the end of Pax Americana. Um, chapter six is the Trump toadies. One of the most interesting questions that I am asked all the time and, and I think about all the time is why Republicans look at Donald Trump um, and have been willing to accept it. Um, I've come up with you know, different explanations, but I'm interested to hear yours. There's the tribalism, the cult of personality. There's, of course, the cynical transactionalism. But how surprised have you been watching Republicans, including people that I'm guessing you have worked with closely for, you know, multiple decades, decide that that they're going to get on this train? How surprising has that been for you? I, you know, I can't, I can't speak for anybody else, but I am utterly shocked, Charlie. I am just gobsmacked. I mean, this has been, this, this has really thrown me for a loop. I mean, the fact that at the beginning of 2016, I, I don't remember any conservatives that I knew who had anything positive to say about Donald Trump. They right, regarded him. One, yeah. yeah, they, they mm-hmm. regarded him exactly as I regarded him as a, as a clown, as a buffoon, as somebody utterly unfit for office. And now, you know, here we are in, in, in 2018, and it's hard to find conservatives who are willing to say anything bad about Trump in public, you know, other than the, the handful of lepers like us who are uh, the never-Trump conservatives. But the mainstream uh, movement and the mainstream party has completely and utterly sold out to him, including people like Paul Ryan, for whom I used to have a lot of respect. And, and it's, it's very, just very dismaying, very demoralizing. Uh, to see these people like Paul Ryan, Marco Rubio, and others that that I thought you know were like-minded and principled and and, and people who stood for all the right things, basically kowtowing uh, to a man that they that they once denounced, and you know why that's happened. I, I I think there's obviously the lust for power, the tribalism, all these different elements uh, play a large role. I think those there's a, it's very cynical. I think with Washington politicians, and there's always a sense that. If it was in their political interest to do so, they would turn on Trump tomorrow. I think it's a little bit different with the Republican base, and that's that's more dismaying because I think there are a lot of true believers out there for whom it's not a cynical transaction, and they're not holding their nose. They actually love what Donald Trump is, is saying because what he is saying is what previous Republican leaders did not say or either did not believe or, or were afraid to say, but he is you know, basically playing up to their xenophobic, isolationist, racist instincts of a lot of people, and they love it. And that's, it's, it's their belief system uh, is deeply disturbing, and, and the cynicism of Washington politicians is deeply disturbing. So it's it's a toxic combination. And, and, and yet a lot of it is also, and you've dealt with this as well, is, the, is not so much pro-Trumpism as anti-anti-Trumpism, which is the reaction to the reaction to the left. Um, and let's talk about where we're going here. And maybe this is one where you and I have some some slight uh, differences. Y- you have said that you're going to be voting for Democrats, correct? Uh, absolutely. This, this, this yes. year. Yes. Now, the the argument made by others, including the founder of this magazine, uh, Bill Crystal, is, look, um, we need to stick with the Republican Party because you need to have you can't have one of the major parties in this country essentially ceded to the, the crackpots. You know, their behavior, their movement to the left, um, their hysterical, um, you know, rhetoric, um, the 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 dogma that we're seeing. I'm not seeing that Democrats have moved in any way that should be attractive to conservatives or even confused conservatives. So 
tell me about why you because I, I I cannot bring myself to vote for people who behave in the way they do and believe the things they do and have been pursuing policies that I've been against for 20 years. Well, to be clear, I mean, I am not becoming a Democrat. I haven't registered as a Democrat, uh, and I, I still have many disagreements with Democrats. Uh, but for me, it's it's a pragmatic move that if you want to have a check and balance upon the power of Donald Trump, you have to get rid of the Republicans in Congress because they have consistently shown that they will not stand up to Trump, that they will uh, knuckle in or that they will even be his enablers. And you see this disgraceful uh, spectacle of Devin Nunes and others yes. who are helping him to obstruct justice, undermine the Justice Department, undermine the FBI in order to keep the truth from emerging about the possible links between Russia and the Trump campaign. That is disgraceful. And, you know, I think that kind of behavior cannot be rewarded. And, and anybody who runs on the Republican label basically today has to pay homage or kowtow to, to Trump. Otherwise, they can't get elected. And we've seen that, you know, with, with Mark Sanford uh, making some critical remarks about Trump yeah. and losing his primary in South Carolina. So the Republican Party is, 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 is entirely owned by Donald Trump and his minions right now. Uh, so I think it's imperative for that reason that Democrats win, and, and, and I would urge a, a down-the-line vote for Democrats uh, in November by any by, by principled conservatives. And that doesn't necessarily mean you agree with Democrats on everything, but it's a vote for checks and balances. It's a vote for, for a correction in our politics so that uh, Republicans don't control all three branches of government. And it's also, you know, a signal to Republicans that, you know, they cannot continue uh, to take advantage of, you know, uh, white nationalism, racism, xenophobia, mm -hmm. all of these other foul sentiments in order to win elections. There must be some punishment uh, for their willingness uh, to call out the darkest forces in America uh, to their advantage. And my sincerest hope, and, and maybe this is just a fantasy, is that if if Trump and his followers are punished at the ballot box, maybe, just maybe, uh, the Republican Party uh, can be reborn as a more principled center-right party, uh, you know, without the, the Trumpist taint. Now, I don't mm -hmm. know if that's going to happen, but I think if we have any chance of having the, the kind of principled conservative party we would like to see, I think it has to begin with political defeats for the current party because if they win— they will take that as a signal to go, you know, 100 miles per hour in the Trumpist direction. They're going to become even more Trumpist. It's going to be a signal for Trump, you know, to fire the Attorney General uh, Sessions, uh, Deputy Attorney yeah. General Rosenstein, to shut down the Mueller investigation, you know, to be even more abusive to immigrants. To you know, it'll it'll if Republicans win, it'll be like Trump winning a referendum and. In, in, in hearing from the American people that his conduct is perfectly acceptable and we want to see more of it. And that is not the message that I think that, you know, principled conservatives should be sending. Yeah, I, I, I've said I would have voted for Doug Jones down in Alabama. I would vote for who's ever running against Devin Nunes or running against Steve King in Iowa. But let's talk about 2020. Can you see yourself voting for Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker for president? Well, it depends on if Trump is on the ballot. If he is on the ballot, Let's I assume he is. Okay, I will vote for anybody against against Trump uh, because I I do believe that 
you know, he is the most threatening force in American politics. And though I may have disagreements with people in the Democratic Party, I don't think that they pose the kind of threat to our democracy uh, that Donald Trump poses. Now, that said, obviously, I would hope that choice is not going to be between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And what I write in the book about is I would love to see a centrist candidate emerge like Macron did in France, who yeah. would say a pox on both your houses. And I think there is the potential as, as to- a, As a third party? As a third party, yes. Um, or potentially taking over one, you know, maybe taking over the Democrats in the way that, that, that you know, Trump took over the Republicans, not really being a real Republican, but he took over the party. It's certainly possible to do that. But maybe as a third party candidate, somebody who is, you know, much more centrist and, and the line I use in the book is maybe a, a slightly younger and more charismatic Michael Bloomberg. Uh, that's the kind of person I'd like to see. Uh, but I, one. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that if that person exists. I mean, that's the problem. But I think there is at least the potential for somebody like that because, you know, if you look at American politics today, Charlie, uh, as, as somebody who is now a member of neither party, I'm actually part of the largest party in America because there's more undeclared uh, than there are Republicans and, and more undeclared than there are Democrats. Uh, I think most people are dissatisfied with the alternatives that they are being presented. And I think this rotten uh, two-party system uh, is ripe for an upheaval. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there that the right candidate uh, could tap into, and especially at the presidential level, if there's somebody who is charismatic and, uh, and, and attractive. But the difficulty, of course, you get into is who is that person X? Well, that's right. And, you know, I've, I've seen these charts, you know, showing how, you know, the the two parties have been pulling further and further away, which means the larger and larger portion of the, the electorate is, is sort of is homeless. There are these independents. But I, I heard a presentation the other day, somebody talking about the the need to create a movement for passionate centrists. And isn't that the problem, Max, that that centrists aren't passionate, that all the passion is at the extremes, the, the loudmouths at the end of the bars on, on, on the right and the left. Yeah, that's the, that's the tragedy of the last couple of centuries. I mean, that is what has given us one odious uh, ideological movement after another and the takeover of too many dictators to count because the great centrist mass of, of, of people is, is, is not mobilized. And, you know, the extremists are the ones who, who are full of passion and fury and and, 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 you know, take a much more active role in politics. I mean, mm. that's essentially where we are today in America. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're sort of like interwar Europe where the choice is between the fascists and the socialists. I would like to have a different choice, and maybe it's not on offer, but, uh, you know, if it's not, then I, I, I fear that our, our country is going to be in for a lot of grief in the years to come. Let me ask you uh, one one more question because you you know you are now politically homeless. Uh, you've lost a lot of your old friends. You've made some new friends, perhaps provisionally. What is the most conservative position that you still hold? The the the, the most the the one that that would be clearly identified as being in the conservative tradition on the on the right end right side of the ledger. Well, I mean, I'm still you know quite conservative when it comes to. The need for defense spending, uh, for American, for a strong military, for strong American international leadership, for standing up to dictators, for championing American values. Uh, but I think, and I'm, I think I'm conservative in other ways too. But I, I don't know that my views reflect con the mainstream conservatism. For example, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative. Uh, you know, I would like to 
keep taxes low, but I would also like to reduce uh, the tax burden and the size of government. I would, you know, like to be responsible with with the with the people's money, and so I'm aghast that uh, Republicans are, you know, rammed through this uh, irresponsible tax cut in the middle of a robust economy that is going to give us trillion dollar deficits, as far as the eye can see. And so, you know, I I think that we should be cutting the deficit. Does that make me, am I still a conservative if I believe that? Because that's not the mainstream position of the Republican Party anymore. This, this is the most interesting thing, because I, I, I'm trying to say, you, your book is why I left the right. You know, I'm trying to say I'm still on the right. And what's happened is that they've they've left where, where I am here. But this question of what does it mean to be a conservative anymore? And it, this is confusing. This is really hard, because what's happened is, is that is that in, in the in the need to acquiesce to Trump, they keep moving the window. So five minutes ago, uh, being a conservative meant being fiscally conservative. But now, if you say these things critical of the the, the tax and spending policies, now suddenly that is no longer uh, conservative. So this is the real dilemma. And also the argument that you hear from folks on the left is that, well, Trumpism, you know, is a genuine expression of conservatism. And, you know, I, I and I've wrestled with this, whether or not uh, Trump represented continuity or discontinuity. And um, I, I think it's it, it's a very complicated question because I do think that there is an alternative Christian uh, Christian uh, conservative uh, tradition that was abandoned and betrayed by Donald Trump. But as you point out in the book, obviously, you have these latent trends that that can't be they can't be denied that. There, you know, and as, as as much as I would like to sit down and say, no, you know, Trumpism has nothing to do with conservatism. Uh, that case is is more and more difficult, as you see, ninety percent of Republicans say that they support Donald Trump. That's exactly right, and I think what Trump has done essentially is to tap into an older uh, conservative tradition that predates the rise of this kind of uh, Burkean synthesis of classical liberalism and traditional values that arose in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, And he really taps into this kind of blood and soil nationalism, uh, nationalistic conservatism, that is the dominant kind of conservatism in Europe, uh, but has not been dominant in the United States, uh, and in fact was... uh, was you know relegated to the sidelines of the Republican Party in the 1950s uh, by the ascendance of, of Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was a consummate moderate. Uh, and now this is kind of the revenge of the isolationists and the xenophobes and the nativists, all mm-hmm. these sentiments that have been there all along, uh, which, as you say, used to be the recessive gene of the Republican Party and have now become dominant. So, Max Boot, the book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. So how many friends have you lost in the last couple of years? Well, a number for sure. I mean, there are certainly It's people. painful, isn't it? I mean, I, it's, yeah. you know, I'm sure you get the same thing I get, that you've sold out. You're now going to all of these fancy cocktail parties in Georgetown. <laughs> and and I, one of my responses, I've, I've never been to a cocktail party in Georgetown ever, probably never will be. But... Um, the and and I don't want to sound like I'm playing the victim card, but it is incredibly disillusioning and maybe even beyond that to sort of soul crushing to to have to go through an experience like this where your entire world basically is turned upside down. That's and, exactly you know, right. And, and again, not not no. not to whine about it, but the relationships that are broken, the 
the, the trust that, that you used to rely upon. I mean, it, it, it is as if the compass of your life is shattered. That's very well put, Charlie. I think soul crushing is exactly right. And it's, you know, I have to laugh at these people on the right who claim that, that folks like us are selling out because we want, you know, mainstream uh, liberal acceptance that we're virtue signaling, you know, we're, uh, we're trying to be embraced by liberals. I mean, I spent my whole life clashing with liberals, and I lived in liberal cities, okay? I grew up in L.A., I went to college at Berkeley. I lived in New Haven, Cambridge, Mass. I lived in New you know York. These people. <laughs> I've always been surrounded by liberals, and always I was always happiest being an iconoclast, being this conservative minority, uh, you know, speaking what I thought was truth to power. And that's a role that I was very comfortable in. I, I did not, you know, if I'd wanted to be part of the mainstream uh, sentiment in, in the places where I lived, I would have become a liberal decades ago, but I was very happy being, and I in fact reveled, you know, in being this conservative troublemaker, and I felt that I was in the trenches with fellow embattled conservatives in places like New York and Washington and elsewhere, and there was a real sense of camaraderie that we were all, you know, we were opposed by all of our neighbors, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. we were in this good fight together, and we were fighting for what we saw as right. I mean, that was a very energizing thing. That's how I define my life since I was probably, you know, 18 years old. And now I've had to redefine my life and realize that a lot of my old friends, uh, you know, either didn't believe in the same things that I did or those beliefs ultimately were not that important to them. And, you know, one of the most, to use again your, your term soul crushing, which I love, one of the most soul crushing conversations I had was with one of my closest friends uh, in the world. Uh, when, you know, in the summer of 2016, when Trump was getting the Republican nomination and, you know, was on his way to the presidency. And this was somebody that I thought agreed with me 100% on everything, basically. I mean, we'd work together, we'd, you know, strategize together. And, you know, when, when Trump had first entered the race, he had just been, he had been as contemptuous as I was of Trump, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then we had this very soul-crushing conversation over a backyard cookout where he basically said, you know, Max, the difference between you and me is that you think that, that politics is about ideas. I think it's tribal, and I am part of the Republican tribe, and I'm going with the Republican tribe. I, I thought, he actually oh my, said that. He articulated he, it that way. He, he, he said it just <laughs> like that. And I thought, oh my goodness, what the hell is going on here? It, it is funny you, you, you tell that story because this is one of the, 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 the shocks that, that, you know, you and I are both sort of, you know, political nerds and geeks and those things. And we did think that politics was about ideas, it was about policies, it was about, you know, the sex, success or failure of those ideas, when in fact it turns out to be about uh, the, the tribal loyalty. It turns out to be about attitude. And that was that was one of the startling things that, that maybe, as you as you pointed out, the you know, all of these ideas that we talked about was like this thin pie crust over this molten reality of what the conservative movement uh, actually was. Well, Max, uh, good luck on on the book. Um, and, uh, you know, it's um, I get the sense that you're not sure where you end up. I share that. I don't know where I end up. But then again, I think the country is right now not sure where it ends up. <laughs> That's well put. I think we're all on an odyssey, and we just don't know exactly where we're headed. Max Booth, the book is The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Thanks for joining me, Max. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. <laughs>